Hello, this is Emo Phillips, and you're listening to Mike Tamano, your home for polka. Did they explain to you what the show is? Uh, not exactly. The Mike Tamano Happening. Can you dig it? Yeah. Happy Labor Day 2021, and welcome to our 10th episode of the Mike Tomato Happening. Hey, make sure you subscribe, and wherever you stream your favorite podcast, please share links on your social media, and thank you for listening. Uh, today, we will hear two grown men geek out on the first eight Black Sabbath albums. Yeah, the original Ozzy-era recordings. And if you are a Black Sabbath fan, you'll have plenty to agree and much to disagree on, I'm sure, as we stroll down that memory lane. But first, we're going to unlock the vaults here in Tomato Land for an interview with punk rock icon and bassist Mike Watt. I did this interview in 2005 for a specialty psychedelic show I was doing, and uh, Mike and I discussed his influences, his career, and his approach to music, art, and life. Of course, Mike's legacy is in the Minutemen and Firehose bands. Uh, also, his many collaborations, which have established him as the real deal in his recent stint as the bassist with Iggy and the Stooges. So we'll start with that. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode of the Mike Tomano Happening. Hey, it's Mike Watt. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hey. It's good to have you on. Of course, Mike, uh, from the seminal punk bands, The Minutemen and Firehose, and uh, definitely a very, very important solo artist. How have things been going out in Pedro? Well, thanks for having me aboard. You know, uh, here we call it Pedro for some reason. Pedro. (laughs) Is that how it's actually pronounced? It's a colloquialism. (laughs) I don't know why. I came here from Virginia when I was 10 and been there uh, ever since, and that's just the way they say it. Well, that's cool. And, uh, but it being in the harbor of Los Angeles, uh, I get to paddle my kayak three days a week. Yeah, you know, on the new album, The Second Man's Middle Stand, we're, we're going to get into that about this great album that you put together. Plucking, peddling, paddling. That's, that's uh, kind of an axis of uh, enjoyment for you, huh? <laughs> well, that is where I find myself in my middle years. I guess my midlife thing wasn't trying to be a 20-year-old. It was going further back to nine or something. <laughs> okay. Right. That's, that's a good place to be. I and paddling my kayak and playing my bass uh, brings big joy to me. I think a lot of people need to find uh, things that they can get into. And you know what's funny? You mentioned going, you know, reverting back to nine years old. I find that the things that I loved doing when I was nine are still the things that I love today. You know, I like to play my drums. I like to, I like archery a lot, and I like uh, fishing, and, and those are the kind of things you forget about them when you get wrapped up in, uh, well, what most people go through in the middle. In oh, the middle yeah, life. you think like you grow out of it. Right. Then you'll find out you have to kind of grow. You know, I'm 47 now, and you have to, like, grow back into it. <laughs> right, grow back into it. So now what do you do? You paddle uh, You paddle at the sunrise? or yeah, I do all my stuff early in the morning. That's another thing about the middle years. I don't right. really stay up late for gigs. 
play gigs. Uh, most of the time I conk early and I, I get up before the sun. So Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday I paddle. And then the other four days a week I pedal. That's perfect. That's perfect. Now, do you do mountain biking, or is it mostly just No, the... you know, living in the harbor, we got the cliffs, the warehouses, the docks. Oh, so you just kind of cruise around. You know, it's got to be nice. Now, you're, you're a musician, so obviously your life is different than most 9-to-5ers, but while everybody else is battling traffic, everybody else is worrying about uh, getting up and getting to work on time, you're paddling up with the sunrise. That's got to be awesome. <laughs> the pelicans, the dolphins, the sea lions, those are my... Uh... <laughs> that's your They're traffic the jam. I share the traffic. Yeah, that's awesome. Gives you a whole new perspective on the day, I bet. Oh, yeah, and it's funny. You know, I, I got a car at 16. I didn't ride a bicycle for 22 years. <laughs> uh, so now you're rediscovering yeah. the bike. <laughs> well, I thought, oh, that's little kid stuff, you know? Right. But like I said before, I had to kind of grow back into it. Neil Peart from Rush are, was a, is a big bicyclist. Huh? Do you know Neil Peart from Rush? Oh, yeah. I hear he gets dropped off before the town. Yeah. And he pedals he, in. He, he says there's uh, two ways to travel. You know, you could travel in a vehicle and, and go through a place, but you really can't experience it unless you're on, you're on a bicycle, and it's true. Yeah, there's something about it. It's great. Cool. And uh, you mentioned the um, second man's mill stand. Well, that was his big piece. I wrote about this sickness that almost killed me a few years ago. Getting over it, getting well, it was those simple things that I really found a lot of value in, you know, after being beat down and almost killed, you know. Yeah. And uh, both that one and the opera I wrote before, Contemplate in the Engine Room, I wrote on the bicycle, you know. Settling in the morning. Yeah. It's weird how you can get rhythms and the way uh, things come to you abstractly that lend themselves into music more than maybe just sitting there or even having the bass in my hand. So now when you're, you're riding your bike or maybe you're, you're pedaling with the pelicans and the sunrise, and, and like you say, nature gives us so many rhythms and so many melodies even to choose from, you get that in your head and then you, you go home and, and do you transfer it to the bass or do you try to just capture that feeling? Yeah, that's what, what I do. In the old days, you know, before I got into that stuff, I I just have the machine in my hand, the bass in my hand, and it almost got like track housing, you know, uh, what I called neck math. You just figured out patterns. It wasn't tied to anything that wasn't kind of man-made stuff I learned. There's something about interacting with nature. I guess it's kind of like a psychedelic experience. You know, you get out of these well-worn ruts, and have the actual reality of the world make uh, it seems like it's even a hyper reality, you know? Right. And and so that it, it breathes a big breath of fresh air into my whole way of uh, composing stuff. Oh, it definitely shows. Those are two of my favorite albums: uh, the Second Man's Middle Stand and Contemplating the Engine Room. Well, you know, there's a danger in playing too long. You get caught in what I call. You know, the I love Lucy rerun syndrome. You just keep regurgitating. Like I said, track housings, right? Let's put the porch on this side, the garage on that side. Right, right. So you need things to come into your life, I think, to keep you vital, keep you in the moment. Uh, Like with bicycle riding, I mean, after a while you don't fall down as much. But then is it really about riding with no hands or, you know, 
the unicycles. Yeah, I think it's more important where you're going to take the bike, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So the same with bass. You know, it's not really more and more notes, faster and faster. It's, i got to find something that feels genuine to me, you know, so I can be impassioned about it. I'm not just doing uh, connecting the dots. Well, and and you're very uh, you're a very accomplished bass player, so you do get into that rut. And one of the things that you know, a lot of these uh, musicians get into this. It's almost an acrobatic display, and then you, you kind of say, "Yeah, it's it's fine to watch you play all these notes at at a hundred miles an hour, but is it music?" There's a point where you're kind of saying, "I don't know." Yeah. So you got to get back Absolutely. to. Absolutely, that's why the punk um, movement, when I first experienced, had such. a profound effect on me because that was you know in the middle uh, later 70s and all fusion was really big and it was then seeing these guys in hollywood play who were just obviously just starting out right and it made me think about what is music you know is it really just virtuosity or is there some kind of story some kind of heart to it right when you were in the Minutemen and, uh, and and subsequently in Firehose, did you think? I mean, when you were a young kid and you guys definitely had something to say and you you expressed yourself so greatly in in, in all your songs, did you think look did, that someday you'd look back and, and have this uh, this place in that pantheon, that movement where you guys would be revered as such? Uh, yeah, it's strange about that because we were so in the moment. When I think about the Minutemen. I think about D. Boone. Basically, it was me and my friend, you know, uh, what we did started at 13, just playing for each other, and a movement came that was so open at the time that they let anybody play. So basically, we took our personal relationship, put it in front of people. Right. And I have to say, people have been very generous with remembering us, and uh, because uh, at the time, you know, we... We were th- I thought we were part of this big kind of thing. I mean, it was very loose. There was no hierarchy. <laughs> it was right. No, it was it, even to call it a movement is strange. But I, I have to say that because in weird ways, the guys in the other bands, like Black Flag and Husker Du and the Meat Pups, they were all kind of inspiring us, influencing us. But it wasn't like you would want to copy them. But somehow there was like a spirit or something. Yeah, it was a camaraderie. We're, yeah, we're, we're doing this for the right reason. We've got so that's something. That's the way to... I look at those days. It's hard for me when I think of a separateness. Okay, me and D. Boone as boys, and now we get to do this in front of people. But at the same time, I'm thinking of the this weird movement. Mm-hmm. Somehow, we were doing our version of trying to find our own voice. Well, and there's there's a, it's a voice that's easily recognized, and I think people can now see it. Uh, and I'm not going to cast dispersions on a band, but we can we can package punk and we can say, here's Green Day with their new punk album, and they can play the Grammys and be punks, but it's not the same. And, and it's not. No, I'm not saying all. that they're not a good musicians or that their work's not valid. I'm just saying there's like a nod from people who came up, you know, like you still do. You pack the Econoline van, you put up your own flyers, and you get a bunch of people to come out and have a great time and share an experience. You can't really do that with a corporate structure. No. And since that system worked for me in those old days, I thought to myself, why change? Right. And some, in fact, I've been doing some uh, spiels with people who tell me that Green Day has a, a punk opera. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, so you kind of started That's that. what their new album is, I've been told. And, you know, my, the engine room one was like eight years ago. And You know what i got to say, though, about young people? 
they are a lot more open-minded and generous, you know, to check things out than maybe in my day. God, in my day when I was a teenager, people wouldn't listen to stuff that was even four or five years old. Right. You know, um, you know, the early 70s and all that. And uh, nowadays I find out that kids are very interested in, you know, where things came from. Right. They're not... I know there's these corporate pressures to market the flavor of the day, but, man, it just seems people, uh, younger people just want to check things out. It's so funny I hear them called slackers because <laughs> you never met a bigger generation of slackers than in my day. No, oh, tell me about it, yeah. <laughs> we know how to so, slack, my friend. So for some of them, I mean, if you think about it, Pat Boone sold more Tutti Fruities than Little Richard. And right. That was 50 years ago, so the, the idea of... Uh, genuine things getting co-opted is probably an old thing, so it's always going to be with us, I think. And you know, but but on the other side of that, like any farmer would tell you, you know, if you want a good crop, use a lot of manure. <laughs> so, That's you got to sift through I, it. I right? never get too cynical about it. <laughs> and I've actually met the guys in Green Day. They seem like uh, nice cats. I mean, a lot of these, you know, the kids are they're born in a moment, you know, and it's a lot of it's circumstance. Oh, yeah. And, and they don't, I was never talked down to by them. In fact, they gave me a lot of respect, you know, and us being older men. But, but, but you're right, the days are different. For one thing, a lot of people, I know it got pretty big in England early, but in the U.S., punk kind of stayed small for a long time. For a long time. A lot time. of people, you know, the Square John people especially, kind of hated it. But it, that wasn't totally a negative thing, because like you were saying, the self-reliance thing, it helped build it in us. Well, nobody's going to put up these flyers. We'll do it ourselves. Right. And like I was saying, if it worked then, I, I still do it. Because what, what I treasure most, what I learned about that movement was autonomy, you know, freedom. If you're not tied, if you're not a hand puppet, you know. Right. You can experiment and do crazy stuff like punk operas. <laughs> right. And, you, and all I can say is the second man's middle stand, contemplating the engine room, and... and your first uh, solo release, the the ball ball hog or tugboat, yeah, that was a great album. It was more of a party feel with you yeah. know people stopping I by to make and a jamming. Without a band or like fifteen different bands, right? I right. never tried something like that. It was a kind of a a test of a theory I had that if the bass player knew the song, that anybody could come in and play drums. <laughs> and <sing. laughs> so I just tried it out, and sure enough, because the bass is politically it's a weird thing in a band. You're kind of like the glue. Yeah, you're a bit of rhythm and a bit of melody. Yeah. It kind of like when you go in the bathroom, most people probably look at the tile. Well, <laughs> I look at the grout, you know. <laughs> Let's hold it like together. <laughs> I like that analogy. So D. Boone's mom put me on the bass here at 13. I didn't really know about it. and But, man, I'm very grateful because it is a tr and it's kind of a mysterious instrument, too. Yeah. You've got a chance to kind of reinvent it for people when they experience it. Yeah, well, the electric bass especially is a, a total, you know, changing of the form of the original bass, and, and it's a young instrument, you know. Yeah, and then, um, like in my day when I was younger, it was kind of like what, like right field in Little League, where you put your lame friend or something. But then people like Les Claypool and Flea, they've really popularized it. I, I meet young people now, it's not something they play after guitar, it's like the first instrument they're learning. Yeah, which is much different than when I was younger. So the bass, it, it's it's still finding itself. It's kind of neat that I uh, lucked into playing it. You know, it's the... also weird too leading a band on bass, because 
you're actually backing up your guy. It's in a way it, it, it humbles you, you know. Unless you're trying to do just lead guitar all the time on the bass, but if you're really playing bass, you're kind of pushing your guys up there. You look good, making them look good, you know. So right. I kind of like that. And uh, you're talking about the bass and how it's come to the forefront. Uh, you were part of a uh, movie by Mike Gordon from Fish. Oh yeah, right. About the uh, the government mule. They did a uh, when their bass player Alan Woody passed away. Yeah, uh, Warren and uh, Matt. Yeah. Cats asked me aboard. That's a great. That's a great uh, salute, not only to a fallen uh, musician who who is just an incredible bass player, but yeah, for was. the bass as an instrument, it's a it's a must see. Yeah, and the bass players, God, Bootsy, yeah, Larry <laughs> Graham, John Entwistle. Yeah, the, Chris Squire was there. That was really something. Yeah, isn't that amazing? How was that to be part of that? And you did, uh, uh, yeah. And then we got to uh, what they asked me about my shirts. You know, what's with the flannels? Right, you were flannels, you right? Know, and I told them about Creedence when we were young. Me and D. Boone, you know, we learned all their songs. So in a way, we got to, besides Alan Woody, we got to play uh, tribute to John Fogarty and Creedence because that. That band was had profound effect on us. Yeah, and indirectly to to your best friend D Boone and by yeah, playing a Creedence yeah, tune, you know. Very generous guys. Uh, uh, that was a neat thing to do, you know. Um, they kind of come from a different scene, uh, this j- jam band kind of thing. Yeah, but uh, they had no errors or anything. I guess Mike Gordon's from that too, uh, with Fish and all that. And here they let this guy, you know. Kind of a bizarre, weird guy come and play, and very open. Right. Respect to them, really. Well, it was, I felt it was very honored to be part of the whole thing. But then, right in the moment, playing that song and to, and to do Creedence, something that me and D Boone did so much with these uh, guys all these years later. It shows what a neat thing music is. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it, as Frank Zappa said on his album cover for Freak Out, music is the best. Yeah, it really is. It's the universal language, and I can only—I uh, want to play some of your stuff later on in the show uh, from contemplating the engine room and the second man's middle stand. Uh, I want to just tell people to go to hootpage.com, and I'm not—you know—I know you're probably not uh, ready for this, but it is so refreshing to see uh, an artist who's so true to his art form. Everything from keeping track of your diary to uh, planning your shows and showing people. Uh, the process behind your uh, creative thinking. It, it's, it's, it's a great place to visit. Well, a lot of that comes from um, the early days of the movement. A big part was the fanzines. And I kind of seen the web, I mean, used this way, as an extension of that, where you got no middleman, you know, no gatekeeper. Right. And because uh, in the old days, you know, we really didn't, there was no MTV, so the Every town had their own punk scenes, and the way we knew about them was the fanzines. They were really important. They're like fabric. Right. So when you went out to go on tour, the guy who wrote the article probably uh, is going to open up. You're going to conk at his house after the gig he put on the show. It was a real person-to-person thing. So I try to keep them, you know, like I've been saying, these ethics, I don't think, got old-fashioned. Probably... There was a lot of this in the 60s, too, because you hear these Pebbles records, these 60s bands, mm-hmm. uh, like, what was it called, the Garage thing? Yeah, the, the Garage movement. But it got lost. So mm-hmm. the, for people like uh, me and D. Boone, we had to reinvent it, find out about it again through punk. But th- this stuff might have been happening in the 60s, too. I talk with older people 
uh, like uh, Mayo Thompson, Red Crayola, who was in a, that, that psychedelic oh, yeah. in Texas in the 60s. And he said there was kind of, there's similarities where it was outside enough where uh, it was more personable, less than like what you were saying with the corporate. Yeah, it, it was a scene, and now scenes seem to get sucked up So when I write quickly. them tour diaries, what I'm trying to show kids is, look, this guy can do it, you can do it too. Because that's what the movement did to me, and I feel a debt to pass that on. It's all about empowerment, you know, let the freak flag fly. Perfect. Not the same way, all individually, but, you know, if I'm doing it, you can do it. Right. That's what's, what I learned, and I want to pass that down. And you do a great job of it. What's what's in the uh, the immediate plans for Mike Watt, uh, musician? Excuse me? Oh, any immediate plans to tour? or what? What's your, Oh, what yeah, you're... I'm going to do the um, Second Man Opera in Europe, April oh, and May. There. Awesome. And then I'm going to uh, start uh, working on a new record. I'm going to try to make a record a year now. Uh, it's just something I've... Uh, because the gap actually between the last two records was bigger than my whole Minuteman career. Wow. You know, I did 11 tours and I got sickness and stuff. So there was a mitigate circumstance. But I'm going to try to make a record every year. So this summer I'm going to try to work on it. And then um, I got a call from Mickey a few days ago. We're going to do some uh, Stooges gigs. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. I'm actually... Uh, yeah, you're the bass player. Finally, now. the youngest guy in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Iggy Pop and the Stooges. How, what was that like when they when they did the reunion yeah, you know, with the we were sixteen listening to the Stooges? If people would have said, you know, in thirty years you're going to be playing with these guys. Yeah, right. That's a mind blowing half. Is he? He's a ball of energy, man. What an artist. Oh yeah, he's going to turn fifty eight in April. Incredible. This guy stage dives face first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he reminds me a lot of D Boone in a way, like. You know, this might be the last gig. Got to play it. Yeah. Give it, a, give it your all. And Iggy's definitely... Uh, has a real ethic, too, about it, you know, about working the show, working it, you know. No uh, walkthroughs, no connect the dots, you know. you got to be in the moment. He's a very inspiring guy, Iggy. He's incredible. Well, I, I can't wait to see you. you guys I'm going get... to get to do some uh, gigs in Europe with them. And he was talking about maybe uh, later recording an album so that's some plans I also got this band my oldest band is called Dose it's a two bass band yeah Me tell us about Dose Black Flag Kira and we're almost done with our fourth album we got a couple more songs to record two bass players so uh, that's kind of what in the moment right now I just put out this uh, Banyan album okay. Project Stephen Perkins oh from uh, Jane's Addiction they've done three albums now and I ended up writing half of this last one but it came out a couple months ago and that's what this incredible guitarist, uh, Nels Klein, is playing with Wilco now. Right. He also played on my uh, engine room. So yeah, now, it's trippy about music, how you can connect and interconnect. Yeah. What do you <laughs> look really for in good. a drummer? Because, you know, you worked with so many diverse drummers, from Stephen Perkins to, you know, just uh, from the punk to the, to the more progressive guys. What, what, what do you look for as a bass player in, in, a, in an accompaniment from a yeah, drummer? Yeah, one of them, Steve Perkins... A lot of polyrhythm, a lot of kind of tribal. One of the best rock drummers I ever played with uh, was uh, Dave Grohl. Yeah. Amazing drummer. Jesus. <laughs> I can't. He's a monster. I can't tell you. What, what I'm looking for with anybody uh, who plays music, really, is 
because when I think when more than one guy's playing it, an ensemble, if you will, yeah. It, what you're trying to do is make an interesting conversation. So what you're looking for is personality. Basically, you know, you're, you're trying to fit together with the other cats, but then uh, make kind of make the conversation singular, unique, so it doesn't sound generic. That's the, the, the thing that I'm always trying to fight. It's just the generic, because there's already enough of that out there. Right. So that's what I'm looking for when I'm playing with somebody. What is it that makes it them? I mean, it's funny, because if you look at your own fingerprint, it's unique. But somehow, maybe because, well, whatever, that doesn't come through. It gets all, <laughs> you know, generic doubt. Oh, yeah. And you start you know, going through the motions. I think that's what the, one of the things about the arts is for, is to try to that tendency and bring out the uniqueness almost celebrate it right right you know and, and when you so talk what I'm looking for with the drummer I even play with a guy who doesn't have the best time whatever if he's got something that you know makes it stand out then that's going to fire something up inside of me right bring out stuff maybe I haven't explored before so that's what I'm looking for you know I think life is about learning it so you get you got to keep pushing yourself in situations that'll challenge you and make you learn. Oh, absolutely. Learn. And as far as uh, conversationalists as uh, as musicians, it is true. You know, you, you, there's yeah, only like one way to talk. Uh, Max Roach had this song called Percussion Discussion sure. a long time ago. And it, even though, you know, the rhythm section, right? But yeah, we are kind of talking to each other. Right. And you know, when I was talking that, to, then the soloist or whatever, the guys in the mid range, right, in the treble, they can pick up on this. And it's interesting. I, found, I got this audio interview of John Coltrane in 1958, and the guy asked him, I think it was August Bloom. He asked him, uh, "What are you listening to when you're soloing like that?" And he goes, "The bass." Yeah. And you never saw a bigger smile on your face. Yeah, right. And when I heard that, I mean, this is John Coltrane, and he's saying he's listening to the bass. That's amazing. And, you know, we were talking about kids discovering things. They need to find that, you know. Um, they need to know that jazz, uh, yeah, it's Wynton Marsalis, but you go back and find out who John Coltrane is. you got to educate yourself on that, and you oh, find yeah. out. And you talk about psychedelic. Wow. Yeah. Coltrane's, his entire catalog, and you talk about a progression of an artist. You know, starting from his early days, and when he went up through miles, to the to the the things he was doing towards the time when his life ended, were a direct conversation with a higher power. I mean, those cats were they were on telepathy. You know, yeah. I mean, much respect. It's funny too. You know, I didn't grow up with any of that knowledge. I grew up Navy housing. You know, mm -hmm. wasn't a lot of uh, exploration with that. So I found it through the punk scene, Raymond Pettibone. I met early on played that stuff for me and I actually I thought they were playing they were doing punk too they were just older I didn't even know John Coltrane was dead yeah. uh, but the music there was something uh, really emotional about it you know and, and it connected with me even though I, I, you know I was coming from Blue uh, Oyster Cult and uh, Credence right but this hit me like you were saying kind of on a spirit level and I found out you know listening more and more and reading about him and interesting interesting man to get back to your music and to tie it all in here we're talking about mike watt here and uh one of my favorite artists because there's a a balance when i listen to your music of structure i mean you know you've got a, a 
you've got a point that you want to make, but there's also a real uh, openness to spontaneity, or, or so it seems. Yeah, well, I try to work that in. So when you're writing, do you leave room when you're writing a tune? Or, you know, you kind of leave room oh, for... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. See, in the early days with Dee Boone, since I grew up with him, he could just, by osmosis, come up with parts. I wouldn't have to tell him parts. Right. And then when I lost him, you know, uh, I still tried to get that going in a way. But I couldn't, you know, reinvent all my early years. So uh, with composition, I try to set that up. Where I'll talk to the guys, I'll give them even non-musical things, you know. Hey, this is sailors laughing. Right. You know, and let them interpret it their way, and then part of their personality will come out through the music. Right. That's another neat thing about being on the bass. You know, you can set folks up. So you're not, you know, everybody's not a caboose to your train, you know? Right. You're kind of, and that, like that's said the, before, looking good by making them look good, you know? Putting, putting them in a light, like, here here they go, here's their story. Right, and, and it's also... Facilitate this. It's storytelling, and it is conversation, where you... So you could play a bass, and in your head you're saying, you know, this is me paddling with the pelicans, this is me angry because uh, dinner's burnt, or, you know, this is me crying, and... and it's a direct connection between the artist and the instrument. I think that's that's an essential lesson for a musician before even learning a note or or, or a chord or whatever. Yeah, I do too. Excellent. Well, Mike, thanks for taking time out for us, man. I want to invite everybody to go to hootpage.com, which is your uh, your diary, your 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 art, your work, your links, everything that you need for Mike Watt. And uh yeah, I, you know, I was conceived in Chicago. Oh, is so that right? Conne- there's a boot camp, North Shore or something. Sure, up by the Great Lakes. That's where my father was 19 years old, met my mother. So I have a real connect with Chicago. Well, I appreciate you taking time, Mike. And I oh, will, absolutely. I'm, all right, man, what a pleasure talking to you. I, I must say that uh, your work is very inspiring to me, and I I love to listen to you talk, and I love to read the stuff that you write. So uh, keep well, up the good work. thank you much, and any time. Oh, yeah. Well, when... me great things that I usually don't get asked, you know? Be well, my friend. Okay. All right, joining us from Austin, Texas, my childhood friend, my brother, an amazing musician. I'm going to say philosopher. I don't mean to, you know, put you on the spot there. One of the most balanced thinking individuals I've ever had the pleasure of knowing and loving. It's uh, Mark DeRoba. Hi, Mark. Nice to be with you, Tamans. I love your I love your radio show. I love your podcast. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Participate in a little discussion. Yeah, this is um, the first uh, geek out. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna geek out, and so because you know, there's people who I've known my whole life, and you know, you and I have so much history. My friend Bob, right. the same thing. My friend Rick, the same thing. We call each other at least once, twice a week. We catch up on what's going on in our lives, and inevitably, we can't help it. The conversation goes to music, and it could be the most obscure shit. You know, hey, you know what I was listening to today? Uh, Jeff Beck wired. Oh yeah, you know the drummer. I mean, it's just it, and for, and then there's another hour of conversation. <laughs> That's right. 
It's always well, been that's, that way. That's part of our lives. It's part it's of our lives. Part of our lives. Part of our lives, indeed. And Mark, now, so you're in Austin, Texas, for the time being. That's right. You spent some time in Los Angeles and California. And how would you? Well, you can't really compare this day and age with the political climate and the chaos that has ensued in the last uh, decade. But how would you, as a musician, how would you rank? L.A., New York, and Austin for, you know, the working musician? That's a good question since nobody's really been working. Yeah, um, it's hard to, it's hard to know, rank that these days. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, still, have a, I still have a love of uh, New York, uh, the New York music yeah. scene, because I have so many friends there. And, you know, a lot of, I have a lot of friends in Austin, too, and, um, and also in, in Vegas, people playing... There's a lot of gigs in Vegas these days with um, with casinos and, and and such. Yeah. So um, there's there's a lot of stuff going on there. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a crazy thing. And and admittedly, I'm a little bit out of touch with a lot of what the what the kids are doing these days. The newer newer things, <laughs> right? Because um, you know, working in a re- in a recording environment, um, because I I've been a recording engineer at. Um, in my job for for the last five or six years and and helping students with their recording projects it seems like there's a lot of oh let's just say a lot of young white hip poppers and rappers <laughs> yeah, and right. uh and then uh, and then and then you know you get I, I certainly get my share of music school kids who come in and want to record a box sonata or a or a choral piece for of their friend's work but um uh you know the classical type folks but you know the real you know rock and roll kind of you know um down and dirty you know really trying to express yourself find your own voice kind of a kind of a musician i don't see a whole lot of that these days it seems like uh people oh, are more focused on making videos on youtube and stuff like yeah, that yeah it's very cookie cutter <laughs> it's it's a whole different thing it's a whole different ball game well do you and i have a shared love of the band black sabbath and so today for the geek out we are going to rank and i i made it very specific because i bowed out when ozzy left okay so after never say die what was that 78 that's uh, right i said i'm done with black sabbath they're no longer and, 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 and i like ronnie james dio i always did and i like the albums that they did subsequently you know from the departure right. of ozzy but for me, the magic was gone. It wasn't that same band. And right. so, you know, when they got back together, three-fourths of them, that is, to do the album 13, well, you know, I was so pissed off that Bill Ward wasn't playing on the album. And I'm not a fan of Rick Rubin's production a lot of times. Um, and when I heard the album, I was really disappointed because I thought it was derivative and I didn't like the mix and I thought the songs uh, didn't have a lot of heart in them. So, yeah, that was I mean, it. There's a magic, the, the magic definitely was missing because you don't have the four original guys there. And Bill Ward is an essential aspect of that. Amazing. That magic, the magic of the Black Sabbath sound because, um, you know, the instrumentalists in Black Sabbath really have a it's really a communicative process building Black Sabbath songs because a lot of it is you know especially the early stuff is really pretty quirky in terms of arrangement and oh, yeah. and the sort of riffs and and the sort of 
the fields of uh, of things and the atmosphere and environment, you know, they're all reacting off of each other. It's not as if, you know, there's, even though a lot of their songs feature sort of, you know, things that we think of as being sort of monolithic kind of riffs, but it's only because they're so archetypal at this point that they yeah. have that sort of sound. And the thing is about, you know, it, it, I mean, it's a funny thing with Tony Iommi who continued to make albums under the name Black Sabbath for many years after the original band dissipated. Um, nothing ever sounded like Black Sabbath. <laughs> nothing ever sounded like the first eight albums. No. And especially the, no. The, the first six albums were, I mean, they, that was a universe that they created. And yeah. you, you talk about Bill Ward. He and Geezer, they had this jazz thing going, man. This They yeah, were swinging. Absolutely. Even though they were That's singing right. songs about, you know, Iron Man and War Pigs and Sabbath. But that, that rhythm section was swinging, man. It was it was jazz and uh yeah right. once but so anyway so we, we decided the first eight black sabbath albums which were essential you know when people ask me what were the building blocks for you well i loved kiss and i would always go through your record collection and and find bands i hadn't heard like vandenberg and tigers of pantang or whatever <laughs> whoever these obscure metal bands were you know and then I would go across the street to my friend Morris' house and she came from a catholic family with you know 54 kids and all her older brothers and sisters had these enormous record collections. So I found right. Grateful Dead. So I had such a musical, rich environment growing up. But the soundtrack to my my childhood, it was the anticipation of anything Bowie put out that was a given. And anything that Alice Cooper, the first 11 Alice Cooper records before Alice Cooper the band really became Alice Cooper the person and he went, you know, metal because someone at some record company said, you know, you're lumped in with metal bands, so we're going to make you a metal star. And he got rid of, you know, his, his, well, then he, he became a new wave star before he became a metal oh, yeah, star. Yeah. 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 He was, he was, there was, yeah, the Dada album and uh, what was that other one? Something right. Forces, something Forces. Special, special Forces or yeah, something like that. Armed Forces so, or, yeah. Those, catch his skin. He was looking, he was, he was yeah, pretty. Yeah. Yeah really catching that icky pop vibe or something there right so there's these blocks of uh careers that... were, they were they were actually pretty good records i like them i like them but again yeah. it's not the alice cooper band that did the first no. 11 records and so no. i i and take... you and i are you and i are really united on the muscle of love thing too because we really love muscle of love fantastic and that's one that's sort of that sort of looked down upon of the fan by it seems like of fans of the original band yeah sort of look at that as being sort of the lesser record and I don't know you and I both it's probably our favorite record probably I love Muscle of Love and uh, yeah. the more vaudevillian and uh, English ballroom and cabaret style stuff that he did the more I loved it I loved that stuff yeah. and yeah and, and uh, who's the uh, the bass player uh, Dennis Dunaway Dennis Dunaway uh, come on yeah. man the guy was a monster huh. the Billion Dollar Babies band there that was that was such a tight unit that was it. That was it, man. So going back to that, Sabbath. So that was, so yeah. I initially, you know, heard of Black Sabbath. My sister was dating a guy named Frank. He had a bunch of HX. Knew I was a, a big Kiss fan, a big Monkees fan. I was 12 years old. I didn't know that the Monkees were just in reruns and that they weren't still together. So I had a plan <laughs> to become the drummer of the Monkees. This this is how freaking naive I was. I was going to become the drummer of the Monkees. And my plan was to tell Mickey, listen, man, go up there and front the band with Davy Jones. I'll handle the drums. It's got to be hard playing drums and singing. 
not knowing that this wasn't a real band anyway and i had been watching them in reruns from the previous decade didn't didn't really didn't really, didn't really put that to all together i Walk thought they were still out the there street. yeah right we get the funniest <laughs> looks from. so and then when i was younger the monkeys. yeah the monkeys the, the best and then when i was younger i also would watch the tragically unfunny now but at the time i thought it was hilarious the razzle dazzle hour with uh, the hudson brothers and i noticed that they oh didn't, they didn't have a drummer so i thought maybe i could become a hudson brother the not hudson realizing brothers. that they were actually brothers and you know i'm trying to get mark <laughs> hudson on this program if anybody out there i know i have listeners in australia and canada and japan if you guys have an in to mark hudson tell him i'm cool and uh well, you're going to have to negotiate with the military to probably get them on at this point. <laughs> yeah, right. Are they, they can't be caught All listening. All countries are pretty, pretty locked down. <laughs> right. It's craziness. Poor Australia. God, my heart yeah. bleeds for Australia. So uh, so the first Black Sabbath album. So, so Oh, so Frank turned me on. He gave me Master of Reality uh, on 8-track along with uh, Chicago's first album, Chicago Transit Authority mm. album. and. Excellent. And a rare earth album, I think it was a live rare earth album, and those were that was the turning point. And what you know, and I love the rare earth. I still love the Chicago first album is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. But I heard this Black Sabbath, oh, yeah, and I was absolutely. like, "What is this, man?" I had heard about Black Sabbath. You didn't really hear him on the radio, but I was like, "Holy cow, this is like the coolest." Because I was really into horror movies, so I was like, "This is like a horror movie set to Fangoria." Set to me, I read Fangoria, Famous Monsters of Film, and you re- you remember me well, yes. So Black Sabbath became my go-to band. I once I once asked a girl out on a date on 59th and Mozart. For those of you who grew up on the Chicago South Side, it was a small stereo slash head shop slash record store. And it was one of those oh, one of those places that you know wasn't going to last. But I was walking around with my cousin Randy one day, and we went in there, and this girl bought Volume Four on cassette along with uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And I said, "Oh, are, are, do you love David Bowie and Black Sabbath?" She said, "All that matters is David Bowie and Black Sabbath." So. Right on the spot, I asked her out for a date, and I think we ended up playing Frisbee at Marquette Park. That was our big date, and maybe a pizza slice. But if I remember correctly, I think she scared me because I think she had a few uh, habits that were beyond my realm of uh, acceptance. You know, I think she came from a, a different side of the tracks, and there were certain things, certain telltale signs that I was uh, like, oh, maybe no second date. <laughs> just, <laughs> some of those kids were a little rough you know <laughs> oh you know that was that, that was part of growing up you it was know, part of growing up but uh she was making uh, contacts and yeah she checking had, out the world because there's, there's a big world out there she had a few hobbies that i think were beyond my threshold of uh partydom if you will but uh, so the first Black Sabbath album, so I so immediately I started collecting all the Black Sabbath albums on vinyl. I wish I still had them on vinyl, but they get wrecked. Vinyl seems to get wrecked as I have moved more and more throughout my life, and uh, maybe an ex-wife may have oh, thrown some bastard. out. You don't have your Black Sabbath records. On I've vinyl. got a few. I've got Volume Four, and I've got Sabotage, which are the two that I return to uh, religiously. Yep. But I have the CDs. You need them all on vinyl. I it's do need them all really on vinyl. Really, technical ecstasy and never say die really 
there's never been a good CD version of either one of those. No, records, so they shine you on really vinyl. Need the vinyl. Yeah, they're really good. They sound great on vinyl. You know, I don't know what. Uh, I mean, there. I still have my issues with the mix. I'm, I never say die, but um, it's but thin. They, it definitely sounds warm. It definitely sounds much warmer and more like I imagine they were probably uh, were happy yeah. with the final mix sounding. You know. Yeah. Um, so, but um, you know, it's a it's a whole different world. It, CDs are are uh, you know tricky business. Yeah, yeah, you never know what you're getting. So the first Black Sabbath album, uh, 1970, right? Yep. They hit the hit the road running with uh, a pretty weird little album that uh, still still stands up today. When I was preparing to uh, to do this conversation with you, I revisited it. Their bluesy roots still very uh, prominent on you know the Wizard and uh, some of the other tracks, mm-hmm. Wicked World. There's a very very blues influence, twelve bar blues kind of uh, influence. But that first opening theme, Black Sabbath, their eponymous song. Are you kidding me? The yeah, template. Judy, the you know I uh, you know Black Sabbath, the the first record to me um, has this really special uh, atmosphere to it. Yeah, uh, and, and, and it's it's in the sound of the record. And I I know that it was recorded and I think maybe wasn't it like a one a one day kind of recording process? Yeah. Least, oh yeah. I think it was made in a week. Yeah, they had like a week, a week to get this whole thing together. And um, you know, it's got this really open and haunting atmosphere. Uh, and I, to me, it's the one record where I feel like um, they they never they never recaptured that same sound again. And it reminds me of. So when I was a kid, um, I remember buying the first Van Halen record when it came out in 78. And the first thing I thought of when I heard that record was the first Black Sabbath record. And it wasn't because I had the technical knowledge to to be able to place why I thought it sounded like that. But years later, after I became more savvy with recording on my old Fostex 4-track and went into the recording studio for the first time and started thinking about stereo mixing and all of that kind of stuff, I realized what it was that uh, reminded me so much of that uh, first Black Sabbath record and why I put those two together. And it's because obviously the, the sounds of the bands each uh, are very, they both have very unique personalities. But it's that thing of the one guitar panned mm-hmm. to one side, the bass sort of panned right, and then, uh, and then Eddie's guitar with the reverb over on the right side in the bass channel and then the drum stereo and the vocal stereo and then added little added guitars uh, that are peppered in there and there's a real there's a real vibe on the first Van Halen record that's like that first Sabbath record it really seems so immediate and there's something really uh, like you're sitting in a room yes. and listening to this music in a, in a sort of hyper real sort of way Very and airy. the other thing too is that there's a weird guitar solo by by uh, Iomi on the first uh, on that first record, uh, which is I think on uh, is it the warning uh, where he does that long guitar solo? Yeah, which a is bit, sort of a, a bit a way, of it's a precursor to yeah, it's a it's a precursor to eruption in a weird way too. Yeah, and yeah. I know that I know that uh, I know that um, that Eddie um, and the original Van Halen. Uh, you know they were they they considered Rat Salad as a name for their band yeah. before they went they were Van Halen. 
so they were big they were definitely big Sabbath fans. But that, it's an interesting uh, comparison, and I still think of those two records in the same sort of way. There's a certain magic about them that yeah. um, they never they never recaptured that sort of thing. And that's because both bands kept moving forward, which is nice. And the other thing about the first Black Sabbath record, which is weird, because half of it is sort of um, it does have that sort of bluesy thing that um, and almost seems um, a little bit rambling, like they haven't they hadn't quite gotten that stuff together. The sound kind of coalesced on their second album, Paranoid, which is you know it's an epic, it's an epic record, and the playing is magnificent, and the production's a little bit open. You know, there's a little bit more space to hear everybody's instruments. Yeah, it definitely has a it it. it it has a similar sound to the first album in the sense that it's a very live sound. Yeah. Uh, but the attitude's definitely darker, um, and uh, the production's a little harder sounding. You know, I, I feel like there's a there, there's similar there's similar themes going on too. I mean, there's definitely the there's a bit of swing on a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. There's the, the multi-layered uh, arrangements of like Hand of Doom are are similar to things like Wicked World and Behind the Wall of Sleep and yeah it's definitely it's definitely a darker record yeah. but it's similar standard oh. tuning another student standard tuning record yeah, they so hadn't they hadn't figured it out. Simple. Now he did that, you know, basically, you know, even though it defined their sound and defined, you know, subsequently a whole genre of music, the the you know, the down tuning. I think he he did that because of the uh the plastic additions on his fingers Tony Iommi where he had that problem you know at at work he cut part of his fingers off and then he had these caps replaced them and I think it was easier to bend the notes and to to get you know get the action on his guitar a little bit more forgiving and as a result they got a darker sound and like I said they forged an entire genre of music being, you know, heavy metal, doom metal, the stoner metal, whatever you want to call it, desert rock. That was their thing. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that it, I, my, my, while well, I'm, I agree with you that I, I'm sure that it made the playing easier on his fingers. I mean, maybe he found that touring was really stressing his hands on, but, um, I mean, they had been in standard tuning for all that time and his, you know, the injury was before the first record. So, right, right. Um, I have a feeling it was really more of an aesthetic choice. I think he just stumbled on this aesthetic choice because I marvel at the fact that he can play a, a, a Gibson guitar, a SG, tuned down a step and a half because the string tension on a Fender is all, already super slinky. And with, uh, with light gauge strings, I think he was playing nines, uh, throughout his career, tuned down a step and a half, those things must have been like playing rubber bands. <laughs> <laughs> like they're falling off. I know it's pretty bizarre, but you say like a claymation version of, uh, of rock guitar. <laughs> claymation rock—that's a new genre that they're uh, that they're uh, pioneering. So we have War Pigs, Luke's Wall, Killer Opening. Uh, goes yeah. into Paranoid, which was the single. Which wouldn't it be great if we had that cool of music being released as singles for radios these for radio play these these days? Uh, Paranoid, yeah. uh, a short little piece that they threw on at the the last minute when they had some time left on the album. Uh, Planet Caravan, which is you know, Planet Caravan's in the uh, 
in the realm of changes. You know, you either love it or you skip over it. For me, oh I like God, it. It's so boring. It's so boring. <laughs> and, and that goofy, the goofy vibrato or whatever that they put on Ozzy's voice is just, oh. Yeah. So, well, as, really... as Geezer said, it's a good song to get stoned to. That that's pretty much. I think that's that was the uh, the impetus I for think that particular getting stoned tune. Part happened before the the song was recorded. I think getting stoned was a, a, a complete day for them. Uh, you know, activity. <laughs> Iron Man, of course. Iron Man's always fun. One of the iconic riffs of all time. Electric Funeral again. Uh, the production on that really shines. Uh, an amazing display of uh, the incomparable Bill Ward geezer butler rhythm section as is fairies wear boots jack the stripper with the intro fairies wear boots fairies were unbelievably good yeah great that's a great piece of music right there that's one of my that's at the top of the mountain of yeah. Sabbath. Yeah. And, and, and of doom is incredible and uh, of course the instrumental rat salad fun stuff there as well so you know that album goes in there it, it's one of those albums that is it's identifiable with the band it's pretty much what passive fans would would own in their collection but it's still a great album nonetheless and one of the most ridiculously stupid yet wonderful uh covers of all time <laughs> definitely definitely it, it was uh, the, the album was originally um, was going to be called War Pigs which yeah. is why which uh, explains the goofy cover I mean it still would have been a goofy cover if it was called War Pigs yeah you've got a but, guy uh, with like, like a cardboard cutout uh, shield this weird uh, clown outfit on it seems like like with a big it was it was it's definitely like a. It's like a. It's like you went to the Renaissance Fair on acid. <laughs> He's got tights on with these purple with purple underwear, like a NASA or a race car driver's helmet, something with some emblem on it, yeah. and then this sword that you would find in like some some white trash yeah. head shop or something. A sword next to the Dragon Collection. Very bizarre. And so the next album is where they kind of forge that really gloomy sound master of reality so many great songs here mark sweet leaf killer tune to open the the album uh for their favorite herb after forever a beautiful song great bass line from geezer excellent playing across the board we have embryo which is just like a little intro to children of the grave another epic rock and roll tune Orchid, which I know is one yeah. of, that's Orchid, you're a fan of Orchid. I, I I like all of the I like all of the, the little pieces that Iomi puts on Tabith Records. Um I always I, I always think they're I always think they're nice little little bridges in between songs. So, yeah. yeah, I'm a fan. Especially you know, it was a nice little uh, intermission to the heavy hitting yeah. album that is Master of Reality. Yeah. And this album was so influential, of course, you know, to Kias and Queens of the Stone Age and the desert rock, uh, stoner rock genre. Actually, the great band Masters of Reality featured uh, Ginger Baker on their first album. That's a great album. Yeah, that, that is a great album. Yeah, definitely, definitely the Dawn of Doom. And, uh, you know, the cover art with the black cover with the purple smoky logo on it, um, it sort of captures um the spirit of the record which is also um for, this is their first record where they start to get more involved in making a record that sounds like a record as opposed to a representation or 
capturing their live performance. This is definitely sounds a little bit more plastic or um, it's um, it's sculptural. It's sonic sculpture. They're really mm -hmm. working in a they're they're really working the studio and they're making a record versus just capturing a performance. So uh, you know that's it's the first in a series of of them doing this. You can see that they're maturing a little bit. Like volume four really goes pushes that even further. Um, but uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the down tuning really plays a part um, in the sound because um, you know you really have that doomy kind of sound with those loose strings. And we laughed about this before. It, this is I call this the fear and trembling record, like the Kierkegaard fear and trembling record, because it's so filled <laughs> with all this paranoia about uh, your what's the future of my soul? You know, like with you know, with After Forever and Lord of This World, you get the sort of a a double narrator, not unlike NIB, where you get the sense that the devil's talking to you, and then After Forever is kind of like this Christian guilt. Yeah. Uh, theme of what's going to happen to my soul? You know, I, I play guitar in the band called Black Sabbath. Am I going to hell? <laughs> yeah, right. Am I going to hell? And then, you know, and then of course they wrap it up with Into the Void when they kind of leave right. that, that question open. So that that's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's got a bit of a theme to it. Yeah, the whole album, it, the, 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 the songs definitely play into each other thematically as well as uh, musically. And I'd like to know yeah. what was on the... Uh, bookshelf for Geezer Butler at that time. Because I think that was, that was the time where he was kind because of, he was very religious growing up. And yeah. while other kids were collecting toys, he said he would collect religious icons and he was heavily into the Bible. So this is him kind of, like you said, okay, I'm getting stoned all day long and I'm playing bass in a band. We have groupies on the bus. Am I going to lose my soul? Yeah, that's that's pretty right. bizarre. Yeah. And, and and Children of the Grave is really a a great anti-war, anti-nukes anthem. It's a it's like a it has essentially a, a similar message to the to the uh, you know the hippie love movement of the '60s, except it's very different in its tone. I would say slightly more pessimistic about uh, whether or not the message is going to get through to anybody. Yeah. And one other thing was I was going to say was that. Uh, um, about the sort of aesthetic is that this record you really see that um, they start to become a little bit more economical especially with um, Iomi like he starts to use less color tones and his sound um, sounds more coalesced like all of the notes sort of are like one big sonic punch as opposed to um, having a lot of the brighter you know obviously the the standard tuning is going to add a certain articulation that he loses once he tunes the guitar down and it starts to sound really kind of sludgy but it also makes it a little bit more elegant and simplistic which means that the songs seem to have a little bit more power in that way because everything's sort of simplified yeah. in that way and in a, in a way I, I know you've said this before that um, you get to hear a little bit more of what Ward and and Geezer are doing on the songs because Tony's sort of playing more simply, and the bass and the drums, the sort of the, the interchange between uh, um, the bass and the drums sort of become more obvious in that way. Yeah, right. Well, okay, so if the first three albums, Black Sabbath, uh, Paranoid, and Master of Reality were all tremendous, 
this yeah. was their first epic and that would have been volume four which when you listen to this you're like oh this is a special record this is amazing yeah. stuff wheels of confusion the straightener started off a very hooky tomorrow's dream is number two which it was it was kind of dancing on the line of uh you know maybe they were thinking hey we'll get some airplay and i don't know how much i know in chicago growing up we didn't hear black sabbath often on the radio you might catch a war pigs here and there late at night or you might catch a paranoid uh during yeah. the day but black sabbath wasn't a band that got a lot of but chicago radio was always so their playlists were always so uh restricted you know and especially classic well, rock stations well we were south side kids so everybody in our neighborhood listened to black sabbath everybody listened to black sabbath yeah it was weird it, because because it really related to I mean it appealed to the working class mentality that's the kind of people they were that's where they came from from the black country in England yeah this industrial place and we grew up you and I literally lived a stone's throw from industrial oh, hell stores are, we, we, we lived <laughs> you and I in the neighborhood we lived in we lived houses away from thousands of acres of industrial waste and smoke and toxic right. shit filling the air. That was bleach, bleach manufacturer, tires that were on fire, paint companies. Right. The, my favorite was the tortilla company uh, that right. would, that would the, 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 if you would drive by the tortilla factory at night, the, the ones that got cut wrong or broken and didn't get put in the packages got thrown in the garbage can and there would be literally thousands of rats eating right. tortillas <laughs> and so right we lived Beautiful. walking distance from a toxic wasteland so uh yeah, yeah so we could relate to we could re definitely relate to electric funeral or, or children of the grave yeah, yeah. And not only not only the not only that industrial waste, but then the human fecal matter that populated the, <laughs> the streams underneath Central Avenue Bridge. Yes, yes, much homeless. A uh, lot of a lot of people get upset stepping in dog shit. You think that's bad? Step in human shit and uh, see how you feel. Yeah. How about long long waiting pools filled with it? Yeah. That was in the in the in the summer heat, that smell would just waft <laughs> everywhere. And that's why Black everywhere. Sabbath was our band. So right. we've got we've got Wheels of Confusion into the Straightener. Great record, uh, a great song. Tomorrow's Dream. I like. We all have records that we skip certain tunes, right? For me, I skip yeah. changes. I listen to Volume Four often. You know, every few months I have this one in the car or in the stereo at home, and. Change is just, you know, I get it. Okay, let's show our softer side. Let's have a ballad. Uh, but it does nothing for me, that song. Yeah. Uh, well, the only time I'll skip changes for FX is if it's a, I'm listening to a CD in the car. But normally if I'm listening to it, it's on vinyl. And I will let it play on vinyl because, to me, the vinyl listening experience is kind of a sacred thing. You just, you're, I'm in it. Yep, side one, I'm side it. two. I'm not moving the needle. Agreed. I, I do the play. same thing. I do the same thing. Uh, if I'm listening to Blue Oyster Cult's Agents of Fortune, which is one of my all-time favorite bands, I think it's or yeah. one of my favorite albums. It's one of, it's just a perfect record, beginning to end. I may I may skip. Don't fear the reaper. If I'm in a car, 
if I'm spinning my vinyl, the whole album gets played. That's a really good point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. So, there's so many levels to the vinyl listening experience. There's nostalgia, there's respect for tradition, and there's the rich experience of hearing record record from beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, with vinyl, you know, I always approach it like I do reading a novel. Like, I'm in it. I want to know every detail, and I'm going to stay with the, I'm staying with the story. I'm not skipping pages. Right. I'm reading a history book, which is sort of like listening to a CD, I guess. Maybe this is not the best analogy, but I'll skip around. I'll look for things that I want to read about. Yeah, well, yeah, well, but that's the thing. It's like watching a film. You don't skip a middle of a film if you're going to do it. Yeah. But like you said, it's 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 an active listening experience at home on the stereo yeah. with or without your headphones on whatever you, it's That's right. but driving to work or to the store it's a passive listening experience so i just want to hear stuff that i could sing along to and that i'm really into so i may skip yeah. it on on the cd yeah good That's right super not one of the greatest rock and roll riffs of all time one of Frank Zappa's favorites. One of Frank Zappa's favorites. He actually, I th- I believe he was supposed to play on stage, or he did, or something. But yeah, Geezer said he was very enamored with them for a period, and uh, you could see why. They were doing something different. Isn't it in Frank's autobiography? Doesn't he actually name Supernaut as one of his favorite One of his favorite songs. Record? Yeah, he loves it. He loved the, one of the greatest riffs of all time. And it is. It's, it's, it's a perfect yeah. song. They did Sweet Leaf on Master of Reality, and they had found a new intoxicant cocaine cocaine super the snow blind <laughs> snow blind which uh is a love song to cocaine and uh boy in, in a defense of its use too my favorite is that last part when they change up and uh this is where i feel i belong that's my favorite line man <laughs> you're the one who's really the loser this is where I feel I belong. And for those of us who grew up in the 80s who did not do cocaine, we were like, yeah, but I have $400 in my pocket. You just sold the tires off your Trans Am. Stupid. Right. So, yeah. Right. Snowblind. That's when you're grinding your teeth into dust. <laughs> yeah. Plus, your teeth look like corn nuts, and your jaw keeps swinging back and forth. And your nose is bleeding. The Get the fuck out of, of my day. face. You have a bloody nose. Get out of here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that, you, you want to talk? So so here's, this is, uh, what is it, 1970? When did they put that record out? So was it 74? 72. 72. 72. Yeah, 1972. So we're talking a decade later when it really, they thought cocaine was popular in 72. Get to 1982 when, uh, yeah, I remember, I remember dragging a few loved ones out of uh, hotel rooms that they had been holed up in for four or five days. And you're like, you know, I'm going to just step in here and say, this is probably not your best decision in life. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. You could walk into any local bar in, on the south side of Chicago and, and see the, the majesty of cocaine abuse. <laughs> you and I, you and I, were, you and I were in a band together where there was a stack of, you know, like let's say in the middle of the, the, the show, or, or I'm sorry, the middle of rehearsal or jam, the jam session in the basement. I would want to, you know, grab the Musician magazine or Rolling Stone magazine that was sitting. Oh, look, there's an interview with Miles Davis. I want to read it. And there would be little squares cut out of it with a ray. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with this magazine? It was because our cohorts were uh, making seals out of 
But what, why didn't you pick a? You could have picked a Zildjian ad or a Fender ad to make your sales right. for your Coke. Why did you cut the my? And I'm not even making this up. This is an actual occurrence. I remember. I can remember going in that back area of the basement that we rehearsed in. Okay, and grabbing the Miles Davis Musician magazine, and I was excited to read it. And uh, every other paragraph was cut out. What the hell's that all about? Cocaine. There you go. But we digress. When you, need, when, when you need something to transport your your uh, powder, <laughs> you, you ain't got no time to pick look for Zildjian ads. <laughs> time is of the essence, sir. We cannot discern which page we are cutting the square out of with a razor blade. <laughs> yeah. oh, what Lord. matters is the container. That's um, right. So, uh, volume four... Yes. Uh, lots of progressive rock stuff on this. You know, we've got Under the Sun, Wheels of Confusion, St. Vitus' Dance, all really like, this is like the beginning of their, I, I feel like the beginning of the real sort of progressive rock yeah. to Sabbath. And like, it's really, it's really Sabbath's version of prog rock too, because it, it doesn't sound like other bands who, right. uh, other bands of the, of the genre of progressive rock where, um, things are more sort of, you know, where they shift from maybe a rock feel or an R&B feel to a classical thing or something like that, like Yes or something like that. Right. But um, but they were they were dabbling with it because it was popular yeah, at the time. It was aspects like, of the yeah. Sabbath sound, which is really cool and interesting how they could do these stop and start kinds of things and these massive dynamic shifts in the, in the songs. And they really work well. Yeah. And, and Ozzy's vocals... Really, uh, there's a noticeable improvement in Ozzy's range and his clarity. He's much more, he has much more power as a vocalist by the fourth record. Yeah, and I think he's starting to find who he is rather than just the vocalist singing the uh, right. singing the lyrics that Geezer's writing for the most part. He's kind of finding his voice, and in, in, and by that I mean his character and his his uh, his attitude and in injecting it greatly on this album. Yeah, just an epic, just a, one of the greatest rock and roll records. We shouldn't miss "Beautiful Laguna Sunrise," which I feel is Tony Iommi's greatest acoustic piece. Beautiful piece. This is definitely the the one that doesn't that bears repeated listenings and it rewards you with uh, lots of little nuances it's a it's really beautifully arranged it's um yeah. incredible kind of reminds me of early michael shanker recordings too um in its way i mean it has a similar sound it's probably given that shanker was such a fan of black sabbath too because oh is that right early shanker definitely sounds like black sabbath especially if you listen to lonesome crow by the scorpions <laughs> he sounds like a young tony iomi that's a great record. record lonesome crow's a great record yeah. so yeah so you've got laguna sunrise which is you know because they all were they were all into jazz they all dug the jazz players especially the fusion players of that time and of course um tony's great idol Django reinhardt who not only he didn't just love his guitar playing and his mastery but he loved the fact that he overcame the obstacle of uh being finger deficient yep. <laughs> that... that's right <laughs> so... that's right and, uh... Uh, apparently a friend of iomi's brought over a, a Django reinhardt record to sort of inspire him to, yeah to push on yeah quick crying uh... quick crying and play yeah. your guitar it's uh, yeah. a Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. An epic record. Uh, the title track, very, very good rock and roller. Uh, National Acrobat, killer stuff. 
There's Fluff, which uh, I believe another great tune. Killing Yourself to Live, good solid rocker. Looking for Today, Who Are You? Those two songs seem to me to be... Well, Who Are You to me doesn't seem fully realized. And Looking for Today, it kind of goes back to that Tomorrow's Dream. Let's do something a little catchy and not so uh, bizarro, you know, to get in maybe get some airplay and spiral architect man what a just the opening riff right you know just kicks you right in the teeth but yeah i love this album yeah um the the production on this one is uh really elegant i would say it's the first truly elegant production of a sabbath record and it sounds clean and uh really dynamic yeah which is different because you know volume four is pretty noisy and actually it's slightly claustrophobic and but it's definitely there's a lot of there's a lot of grind in the recording and um and the um, and master of reality actually sounded more stripped down and kind of muddy sounding yeah so this is the first time you really get like a really clean uh really dynamic production from them it sounds it sounds big high dollar and right. uh, the orchestrations are really beautifully done too and rick wakeman makes uh, special appearances on this, which uh, makes it a little bit extra proggy to have uh, the yes keyboard player on there. Yeah, I'm guessing and, uh, they had a good time in the studio. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, you know, this is, I mean, Volume 4, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabotage, in my life, those have been the three that I go back and forth about being my all-time favorites. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath has five of my all-time favorite songs on there, which is you know, title track, Spiral Architect, Killing Yourself to Live, National Acrobat, Sabra Cadabra. Those are all, again, top of the Sabbath heap yeah. in terms of their songwriting. But then it's, it is the weak tracks. Who are you looking for today and fluff? Those are definitely ones that I rarely will listen to. Unless yeah. it's the record turntable. Yeah, I guess it's the car, definitely skip past those. They're not very interesting Tunes. Yeah, we have very um, similar tastes. It's very funny because I do the same thing. Uh, I did listen to Who Are You the last time I had it in the car with me. And I'm like, come on, man. Where's this song going? You know, but. Uh, they spent a lot of time on the other five. It seemed like they kind of ran out of juice or something. <laughs> they had to fill something up. Um, now, before we discuss the next album, there are five rock and roll records from the 70s that play an integral part in who I am. And for various reasons, uh, these records came into my life and made major impacts, both in how I listen to music and my ideas of rock and roll, and also very nostalgic. There there were periods in my life that I remember um, vividly and these were the these five albums were the soundtrack to those particular moments, all different times in my life. The first one would be uh, On the Beach by Neil Young. The reason I like that record so much is because it sounds like it's about to fall apart as you play it. And uh, number four would have been uh, Roxy Music Siren because it's it's a perfect record from beginning to end. And it, it showed me just how beautiful an album could be and how fully realized the band's playing could be and and a vision for a band and Jerry Hall painted blue like a mermaid that's why I picked it up I was at uh, Cruising Music which gets many mentions on this program and um, it was a small store that smelled uh, ridiculously intensely of strawberry incense (laughs) 
I saw this record with Jerry Hall. I mean, I didn't know who it was at the time, but I saw her laying across rocks with uh, fins on her feet. And I'm like, what the? I have to see how this sounds. And the right. uh, the uh, the immortal Larry Green said to me, dude, that's great stuff. And I picked it up and it's become a favorite for, you know, 40 years. Andy but, Newmark. No, Andy Newmark. Andy Newmark didn't play with them until um, Flesh, Flesh and Blood. And this, would, this would have been Paul Thompson. And it's one of those records as a drummer that I can play. I mean, there's Led Zeppelin records I can play, you know, certain songs on. Or there's like songs that I've chosen to, to learn exactly because I'm so in love with the drum part that like, like for example Led Zeppelin the Rover right I listened to yeah. that album and I listened to that song so much and I played it with my headphones that now I can play it on the drums but the reason I learned it was because I wanted to kind of get in the mindset of what is he thinking in relation to the to the melody and to the to the rhythm uh, of this song and so that's you know there's many bands like that where I'll pick and choose songs but Roxy Music Siren was the first record that I learned from the first note to the last groove. I know the drum parts. Uh, I just that, that, so Paul Thompson had such an impact on me uh, as a young aspiring drummer that uh, I learned that record. I would listen to it over and over. And you know the trick, all musicians, where you slow the turntable down to try to figure out just what exactly they're doing. Oh, what yeah. what count were they on when they did that? Yeah. So that's another one. Uh, Blue Oyster Cult, Agents of Fortune. I love the record because it's so fully realized from that band. And it also uh, brings me right back to the summer of 76, which was a turning point in my life. Pink Floyd Animals. I love it from beginning to end just because of the breath and the the go-for-it nature of the band. You know, they just went nuts. They had this, this Orwellian nightmare that Roger Waters put together uh, pointing out the archetypes of mankind and they made a very beautiful record so i can and i also think that the production on that and uh gilmore's playing is just outstanding on that record it's interesting that you pick animals too because um that one i of all the pink Floyd stuff it's one of those records that i also um really relate to because i remember getting it when i was very young and playing it and it really captured that growing up in a dark sort of dreary environment yeah the cover with the with the factories and the and on it and the sound of the record it just sounds sort of it's very somber very uh very very uh yeah there's there's something isolated about it it's very very weird and cold we'll do a show on pink floyd animals because that that's funny you mentioned that because it does relate to a young boy uh, my 10th birthday getting that and even then kind of having my radar honed to bullshit detection you know and it was like i think that might be a south side of chicago thing but as you heard about sheep or you heard about dogs or you heard about pigs on the wing or pigs the three different types you immediately knew who they were talking about in those songs you yeah. know so yeah we right. knew and we knew people that fit into all those categories and still do right. it, it's a perfectly realized <laughs> record but when it comes to the one album that uh, is my all time favorite record I think I've listened to this record more than any other album ever it's my go to I have thousands of CDs that I can you know I'm going on a road trip I always pack a bag full of CDs and it could be anything you know I mean I, I could 
put in some reggae. I could put in new wave from the 80s. I could put in punk rock. I could put in Jimi Hendrix, jazz, fusion, whatever. When I can't figure out what I'm going to grab and I'm not, I don't know what I'm in the mood for. I go to Black Sabbath Sabotage, which never lets me down. I must listen to this record from beginning to end 20 times a year. My favorite record. So we can already guess when we get to our or ranking the albums where I'm going to be with this. But I can only say Hole in the Sky, Driving, Killer song. <laughs> uh, Don't Start Too Late, which is uh, kind of the trail end of that song. And then when it comes, it's like Supernaut. When it comes to riffs, can you get better than Symptom of the Universe, you know? And then they go off on this thing. I kind of always describe this as like the Sergeant Pepper of metal and you had mentioned you know they were dabbling with progressive rock you were saying how they became more comfortable in the studio and they were using the studio to be an entity of itself for creativity instead of you know just trying to capture what they were doing live and then yeah. here you go man you got megalomania what are you kidding me oh epic God, that's incredible Thrill of It All, another great song that yeah. uh, that just and Ozzy sing Ozzy's vocals on this album are incredible. Yeah, Super Czar, which uh, it's the sounds of insanity. You got the choir going. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hammer horror film soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Now I always thought, "Am I going insane?" Which is a song that I love, but it, the uh, parenthetical title is Radio, and I wonder if they were kind of telling radio stations. Hey, this is the one. <laughs> Make sure you play this. I don't know what that is all about. <laughs> I never understood it either. Yeah, it's a it's a cute song though. I like it. Yeah, it's a and then of course the writ, which is another. I mean, what you have here is a number of set pieces that would have been the best song on any other album that they were on, and you've put them all on one record, and it's to me, it's just from beginning to end a yeah. hell of a... And you talk about the vinyl listening experience. It's like watching a movie, watching this thing, or listening to this thing. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's an incredible opening with All in the Sky and Something in the Universe. I mean, those two songs, there's so much energy in those two songs. And actually, I have to say, Don't Start Too Late is one of, is one of the more inventive things that Iomi's ever done in terms of acoustic pieces and it's it's mixed so low you almost don't even notice it like if you have unless you got unless you have the recording cranked you don't hear how many uh what's actually going on in that recording yeah right it's actually quite beautiful there's a there's a lot of little filigreed kind of uh uh lines in there that are it's nice it yeah. almost sounds like a little uh, like a little uh, string arrangement and uh I, I really like it i i, I find it uh and they're really uh, it's it's a, it's a perfect sort of bridge between those two monstrous riffs i mean yeah in the universe just unbelievably yeah it's like dangerous. it's like catch your breath catch your breath because we're about to kick you in the head again yeah exactly yeah, that's right <laughs> so now we're, we've confined this uh geek out to the first eight black sabbath albums the original ozzy era and of course, so we're not counting thirteen, which I feel was a great disappointment. I know people were excited that it was made, but and, and it's fine that it was made. Thirteen was not a lucky number for them. No, no, <laughs> no. The songs were derivative. Yeah. The magic was gone so without Bill Ward. Yeah, the first. So we one thing is is we returned to standard tuning for the last two Ozzy records. Oh, is that right? Uh, yes, really you're right. Strange. Yeah. Yeah, we. we 
we go, we're back to standard tuning. The production is really clean and uh, on technical ecstasy, and uh, the arrangements are awesome. Iomi's I guitar playing is really outstanding on this record. It's really inventive, and Ozzy's in great singing voice. He's got a really beautiful, sweet, bright tone, and he's starting to sound more like Ozzy will sound when he goes solo. When he goes solo. And, but this is the first album, and I've always had this sort of attitude with or this sort of reaction to Technical Ecstasy, which I feel is uh, one of its you know, unfortunate uh, aspects, which is that it's the first time their lyrics really weighed into sort of the territory of triteness. There's yeah. A, a lot of so, sort of kind of, I don't know. Yeah, rock and roll. Just rock and roll kind yeah. of hack, need an uninspired sort of subject matter in a 30 women and she's gone rock and roll doctor. I mean, they're all, I mean, they're all cool songs. Yeah. Um, but it, it it's the first time when they're not really, when Geezer's not really hitting it out of the park with interesting lyrics. Yeah, and they're kind of losing their their darkness and their weirdness. They're kind of going in, yeah. the, in, because this era, the late 70s, you've got UFO, Scorpions, Judas Priest, all kind of heading into that let's not be so esoteric feel and let's get a little more mainstream. I mean, for, yeah. UFO was always that, that way. They were always pretty mainstream and, and straightforward. But I think Iomi, matter of fact, I think I read this in his... Whew, it was a tough to get through biography, Iron Man. You're a better man than I. Oh, it's a tough read because <laughs> he's a great guitar player. You know, hey, yeah. how's Tony Iommi as a writer? Oh, he's a great guitar player. That would be my re- response. Bill Ward's song is the high point of the record. You won't change me. Great song. Uh, it's all right. Uh, a great song. I love uh, all moving parts. Stand still. And I like the whole record. But yeah, it's all right. Is a beautiful, almost. Uh, non-Black Sabbath record. Like, if you played that for someone that had never heard it, they'd be like, this isn't Black Sabbath. But uh, it's a good song. It's a standout. And it also has uh, the rare uh, nylon string guitar solo by Tony Iommi. Yeah. Which is quite good. Yeah. Oh, beautiful stuff. Really, yeah. really good. I love You Won't Change Me. I love Dirty Women. I like Gypsy a lot. And All Moving Parts and Soul is, is great. That's Actually, that's probably the best song on the record, but yeah, I like the whole um, record. I don't skip anything on Technical Ecstasy when I listen to it, no. even in the car. And then we're going to wrap up with uh, with Never Say Die, which is you know an incredible record. I think I I put off the I put off buying it for many years because I I didn't know what to expect, and then I I listened to it. I'm like, well, this is a good album. You know, Never Say Die. It's a sounds more like an Ozzy solo kind of that era like he would have you know he would go yep. on to forge that kind of sound uh, I always liked the poppiness of A Hard Road I thought that's I, I think that's a great a great song uh, Shockwaves Air Dance Over to You Breakout and Swing the Chains Closing Out the Album I think uh, overall this has been a wrongly criticized record I mean people hate it and there's no reason to hate it because it was uh, it's actually got some good songs on it you know yeah, I, I never understood the I never understood the the, the harsh uh, treatment that this record's gotten from Sabbath fans, but because uh, I mean, for me, it's got a bunch of really uh, top shelf uh, Sabbath material: Shockwave, Air Dance, uh, Junior's Eyes, Swinging the Chain, Never Say Die. To me, those are all you know amongst the best things that Sabbath ever did in their career. Um, the only thing on here that I 
really don't like and I think totally sounds out of place on the album is Breakout, the weird horn piece. Yeah. It's like uh, Black Sabbath, Blood, Sweat, and Tears or something. Uh, <laughs> Black Sabbath, Sweat, and Tears. I love it. Right, yeah. Uh, they're, uh, you know, it, the other thing that I find interesting about Never Say Die is um, there's no tunes on this record for the first time where the vocal follows the guitar riff. They really broke new ground on this record, and um, it definitely, in terms of Ozzy's singing style and his voice, you can hear he's already in Blizzard of Ozland, like his voice is already there. Yeah. And his sort of his sense of melody is also, it, it's evolved there too. So what you have is, again, on a, you have uh, Iomi playing a lot simpler on this record. I feel like their songwriting really changed a lot in a, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, because they managed to do a lot of fresh sounding material that doesn't sound like other stuff in their catalog. And they really broke their own mold, like where uh, they would always have these, these tunes where, um, you know, the, the vocal line was following the big guitar riff. And you can tell that everything was being built upon that monolithic guitar riff but you don't really have that anymore um billboard's drumming man johnny blade is that train beat that he plays on there outrageous is a a mother yeah he's out of his mind on that record i think it's some of billboard's over to you also are just fabulous yeah just fabulous tunes i think it's some of uh, billboard's best playing on that album yeah, that, absolutely. That goes back. To, I mean, even like you know, the uh, volume four had some amazing drumming on it. Uh, Paranoid, amazing drumming on it. All the records have great drumming on it from Bill Ward, but he really shined on those albums, and, and Never Said yeah. Die is one of them. Yeah, number eight for you. Which one? Number eight. Yeah. Oh my God, Paranoid. Paranoid. Okay, there you go. I'm I'm dropping my CDs all over the place. Go ahead. Well, you, you, are you doing number eight, or are we doing it? Wow, this is tough, you know, because I'm looking at this. Paranoid's number eight for you. Okay. Uh, for me, number eight, the one that I don't go to as often as maybe I should, would be uh, the original album. It, it's epic. It, it stands to a reason that it is uh, the beginning of greatness, but I don't go back to it as often. So uh, the debut, it was it was what it was. It was fantastic, and uh, so number seven for you is what? Um, God, this is really hard. Yeah. Um, uh, number seven, it will probably be. I guess it's probably the first record, the debut. Okay, I'm I'm having a hard time with this. Um, I'm gonna say. The one that is uh, in number seven position, again, let me preface this by saying I love all eight albums, Technical Ecstasy, uh, only because it, it, it loses the weirdness that I was so drawn to. Um, so, uh, yeah, where are you at with uh, number six? Technical Ecstasy for me. All right, all right. so that was my number seven. I'm going to go Paranoid with number six, Epic Record. Uh, I just don't find myself... Uh, and maybe it's maybe because I played it 17,000 times in my high school years, you know, so uh, but it, the playing is fantastic. And I'm sure that that would uh, would fight with the uh, you know what? I'm going to switch that. Can we cancel that? Number six <laughs> is uh, going to be we're, we're men in our mid 50s actually uh, worrying about where we place Black Sabbath albums in ranking uh, number we got our priorities straight. That's man. right. Number six would be uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. I don't, and then and then Paranoid oh, would be my number five. Oh, 
Only because wow. of Hand of Doom and Fairies uh, Wear Boots. Uh, I, I, I just find those to be epics. And an Electric Funeral I still love. Don't make the, hey, don't judge. So who's your okay. number? Uh, one, two, three, four, five. What's your number five? Jesus. I'm going to have to say number five is going to be, uh, I'm going to have to say Never Say Die. All right. Never Say Die for me comes in at number four. I'm going to go through mine, okay? We're just, because we've been on for an hour talking about Black okay. Sabbath records. Uh, three, Master of Reality. Four, Volume Four, Number One, Sabotage. Back to you. Uh, okay, for me, I'm going to say uh, Number One, Sabotage. Number Two, Volume Four. Number Three, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Number Four, Master of Reality. All right. Where did Never Say Die come into your... Uh, so... <laughs> what, <hold on. laughs> One, two, three, four. Part number five, right? Number well, yeah. So I would be number one, sabotage. Number two, volume four. Number three, master of reality. Never say die. Number four, number five, paranoid. Number six, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath. Number seven, technical ecstasy. Number eight, the debut. All right. All right. Well, I think we did what we needed to do, and the world is a better place, Mark. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about the world being a better place. The world is a better place because of these eight Black Sabbath records. That's true. I can true. tell you that. That's right. And 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 because I'm friends with you, the world is a better place, Mike. I love you, brother. I love you too. So, what's our next geek out? Will it be? Uh, I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. We have to figure it out. I don't know. Maybe maybe rank the Uriah Ape records or something. <laughs> 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 we, today we're ranking Blodwin Pig's first uh, four albums. <laughs> we're ranking the albums where Robin Trower didn't uh, play the G chord. I don't know. It's it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be something fun. Go get them, Tiger. Maybe, maybe maybe a power pop. Uh, maybe a power pop episode. Okay, that'll be fun. All right, Marky D. God bless you, man. I will talk to you this week. I got a lot of editing to do. Yeah. All right, man. Be safe. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right, brother. Well, that's that. Thanks for listening. And until our next episode drops next week, make sure you take some time to catch up on our episodes. Great interviews we've had so far. I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, Just amazing stuff. And until then, you go out there and have your best week ever. We'll talk to you real soon. Can you dig it?